Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. everyone, this is Ilya. Um, I welcome you to today's episode. And um, as I mentioned in my last uh, episode, I wanted to talk about um, the DSM-5 criteria and sort of break it down um, and to its essence so that uh, everyone can understand a little bit better what the diagnostic process looks like. So um, I'll be upfront, I am not a clinician, um, but I've worked with many of them. (laughs) And we've talked uh, at length about how the assessment process is done and um, also uh, what the criteria are for assessment. And so if you listen to the Nancy Rusa podcast, she talks about assessment um, and the evaluation process. Um, and so, you know, if you want to know more about what that looks like, I would head over to listen to her um, her talk. Um, but right now, I'm kind of going to just give you a high level of what it says in the DSM-5 and what the criteria are that need to be met for an autism spectrum diagnosis. So um, if you listen to the last podcast, uh, I kind of broke it down into these sort of these chunks. So um, two areas that get looked at are social communication and then restrictive, repetitive behaviors. And then each one of those um, would get looked at in much more detail. So you would actually s- assess what they call a severity level. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and then there are uh, three more areas. And so you have um, that these symptoms that we're seeing or these behaviors that we're seeing happen in early development. So from birth, we've been noticing kind of something. Um, And then that these symptoms cause significant impairment uh, to -to day-to-day living, I would say. Um, And then as I mentioned in the last one, it's not better explained by <laughs> um, other diagnoses such as global developmental delay or an intellectual disability. So they don't go hand in hand. Um, so uh, one thing to consider is um, that the DSM-5 um, is, uh, was developed in May of 2013 and it redesigned um, how autism is diagnosed. And we'll get into that in a couple minutes. So um, (laughs) if we look again um, more specifically at social communication, and then we talk about uh, what are we looking at in there. In in the last uh, podcast, last episode, I mentioned social-emotional reciprocity, 
Um, I mentioned nonverbal communicative behaviors and then developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. Now, as the criteria is written, it also says this is not an exhaustive list for social communication deficits. So I'm using the language that's written in the DSM-5 because this is what diagnosticians are looking at. Um, so whether it's a psychologist, a physician, a neuropsychologist, um, all of the people we've talked about in the past. Uh, so again, in the Nancy Russa podcast, we talk about who can diagnose. Um, but as it's stated in the DSM-5, you need persistent deficits in social-emotional reciprocity, nonverbal communicative behaviors, and developing, maintaining, and understanding friendships. And according to the DSM-5, <laughs> it is not an exhaustive list. So there are other things that could pop in there that are not necessarily listed there. So it can get a little tricky when you're looking at this. Um, I would imagine from a clinical perspective, to see if, well, it might not fit into one of these boxes, but where does it come from? <laughs> so, you know, that's, um, that's why it takes a lot of training to be able to accurately diagnose. Now, if we look at restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior, so again, that's the other bucket that gets looked at, um, someone would have to have at least two of this list. So the list is repetitive motor movements. So this is where you might see flapping or spinning, um, sometimes staring at things that spin, uh, maybe it's jumping up and down. Uh, so those could be considered these repetitive motor movements. Another piece is insistence on sameness. So inflexibility and in routines, um, as I talked about last time. And then we have that fixated interest in abnormal intensity. So this is where special interests would fall. And then we have hypo or hyper reactivity to sensory input. So again, this is the language used in the DSM-5. Um, so the hypo and hyper reactivity to sensory input, that is where you either have the two extremes, right? Someone needs that big tight squeeze hug um, or they just don't want any of that, right? So, so if we have the hypo, that's where you want that really tight dog. That's really good. Hyper reactivity means, you know, we're sort of avoidant. We really don't want the hug. Um, and again, according to the DSM-5, you'll hear me say that a lot, um, it is not an exhaustive list, okay? So there could be other areas that fall into this restrictive, repetitive patterns of behavior. Um, so again, you need someone who has experience with this, who knows what they're looking at, that can uh, accurately, uh, accurately assess uh, a child or, or adult, actually. Um, and I would say a lot of this uh, input would have to come from multiple areas, right? So we would have maybe the individual can do some part of the self-assessment, depending on how old they are. Uh, parents, maybe other caregivers, perhaps teachers uh, or educators, or maybe someone else that they spend a lot of time with. Maybe they're in an activity and maybe the uh, input from someone else. Um, and this is all in addition to someone who is doing the assessment, such as a neuropsychologist. So there should be a lot of input into um, really assessing someone well and accurately. 
And, you know, as we look uh, into, you know, further into this diagnostic criteria, um, we have that this must be present early in childhood. So it might not become evident or we might not notice it until they're a little older. Um, but when we kind of look back, you go, oh, yeah, I do remember when they were two years old this happened. And and now you're noticing maybe a little bit more now that they're nine, right, or 10. Um, and then the other piece is it should be clinically significant impairment, meaning that um, it is impacting their quality of life, right? So um, it's impacting them socially, occupationally, um, you know, and, and really any other important areas of uh, current functioning, other areas of their life. So those are the two other pieces that get looked at um, during a, uh, an assessment. And again, you know, these things, according to the DSM-5, are not better explained by, so, you know, what we're seeing as far as behavior or symptoms or challenges for someone are not better explained by an intellectual disability or global developmental delay or an other, you know, other language impairment um, or another neurodevelopment disorder or perhaps a mental disorder or a behavioral disorder. So I'm not going to say, like I said before, some of those things do overlap into autism, but they do not have to coexist. So um, they are separate diagnoses. So that list that I just gave you, uh, I would call that just a, a list, a short list of other um, co-occurring types of diagnoses that can happen with autism, but they're not necessarily present for autism to be a diagnosis. Okay, and so now if we go into the social communication and restrictive repetitive behaviors a little bit more deeply, as I mentioned before, you have to assess the severity level in there. So there are these levels. There's level one, there's level two, and there's level three. Hi, this is Elia. Just wanted to let you know that SSG also offers trainings, consultations, and parent coaching. Uh, check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and I'd love to hear from you. And so some of you who may have received a diagnosis um, or for your child, um, you may have been told you're ASD level one or ASD level two, right? So what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and I do feel that while there is criteria that is um, printed, I think also depending on who the, uh, the diagnostician is, um, it, it's going to vary, right? Because people are human. So um, as I go through these, just keep in mind that this can, um, this can vary. And uh, again, I think it's really important to have someone who's looking at uh, someone holistically through multiple different lenses uh, from different people who interact with them. So um, if I look at social communication for level one, which says that, it, you know, the person could require some support um, and things that you would no notice for social communication would be difficulty in initiating social interactions 
or maybe um, atypical or unsuccessful responses to social initiation. So that's someone saying hello, and maybe uh, the response is not a typical response, or um, their attempt to interact and let's say greet with some greet someone um, might not be successful, uh, and then appear to have decreased interest in social interactions. Um, And again, I would say that's probably because it's challenging or they don't know how. Uh, And also attempts to make friends um, can be odd um, and sometimes unsuccessful. So, um, So that's one level. That would be level one. Um, for social communication. Level two for social communication would require substantial support, and that's how it's written for level two. And so level two for social communication would be um, the person uses simple sentences. Um, Interaction is limited to narrow, very narrow special interests. And, um, you know, markedly odd nonverbal communication and then reduced or abnormal response to social interaction. So we're seeing like a little bit of a, of a you know, a diminished functioning from level one, I would say. And then if we look to level three of social communication, uh, a person who is diagnosed at a level three requires very substantial support as it's written. So what we would see here is few words of intelligible speech, rarely initiates interaction, makes unusual approaches to meet needs, and responds to only very direct social approaches. So that could be someone needs to physically touch them and turn them around to be able to communicate with them. Um, Or maybe they do the other, they do it the reverse, right? They actually come up to you and turn you around um, to get your attention. Um, So those are the three levels for social communication. And then if we look at the same three levels or that leveling for restrictive repetitive behaviors, we have, so for level one, again, requiring some support, uh, we have inflexibility of behavior um, uh, and that any change causes significant interference with functioning. Um, And and that could be in one area or more areas. Um, So this might be that transition thing I had mentioned uh, earlier. And then difficulty switching between activities. So that is the transition. So maybe it's between activities or locations or people. Um, And then problems of organization and planning uh, hamper independence. So here is where we start maybe seeing that inkling of the executive functioning piece kind of popping in here. So um, this is your level one, uh, which would require some support. If we move into level two, which says it's requires, it requires substantial support, someone who is at a level two, for restrictive repetitive behaviors, we would see inflexibility of behavior. Um, So it's the same, but a little more magnified. We have difficulty coping with change. Um, And then while we might have, while level one would be like some distress in change, this is like just not having it. Difficulty in even acknowledging the change. Um, And then Other restrictive repetitive behaviors appear frequently enough to be obvious to the casual observer and interfere with functioning 
in a variety of contexts. So that's a lot of words there. <laughs> but, you know, when we're looking at a level one, maybe the repetitive behavior is super subtle. Maybe it's tapping their foot or maybe it's snapping fingers or maybe it's like twirling hair. So that might be really subtle. Um, but if we move into a level two, perhaps it is maybe more obvious flapping or maybe it's jumping or maybe it's spinning. Um, and so that would be more obvious to other people. Um, and then, you know, again, we talk about distress and difficulty with changing focus or attention. Um, so, you know, this particular person might be a little harder to pull away from, um, you know, whatever they're engaged in at the time. And then if we look at a level three, which requires very substantial support, again, we have this inflexibility of behavior, which is a common theme. <laughs> um, and then we have extreme difficulty in coping with change. So not just a little bit of uh, distress or difficulty, but now we have extreme difficulty. Uh, we also have, um, you know, again, the restrictive behaviors interfere with all daily living. So again, it is keeping them um, possibly from having a qual you know, quality of life and keeping them from being able to engage uh, the way they would like. And then great distress and difficulty with changing focus or action. So it's just a little bit more magnified. So this is how um, one would assess the severity levels between social communication and restricted repetitive behaviors. I will say that not in all assessments and evaluations will you see level levels like this. Um, I think, you know, I'm just speaking from you know, my experience of who I've spoken with in the past is that it's kind of really hard if you think about all the things I just talked about to know, right? Like, is this really level one or is this really level two? I would think that in observing um, many people, uh, you know, there might be some people, yes, that we could say this is super severe and they're a level three. Um, and or super mild, yeah, definitely level one, we'll get a little bit of support in. But I think a lot of people fall into this mid-range where it's just, it, it can be vague. And I also think it also depends on um, different situations. It also, because we I mentioned before of all the different facets, you know, maybe today looks one way and tomorrow looks a different way. Um, and also when you put a child or anyone into an assessment setting, um, no matter how natural you try to make that, uh, it can be uh, altering to someone's behavior. And so you might not always be getting an accurate picture of what, you know, it looks like day to day. So this is why multiple uh, sources of input and information is really important. Um, and also finding a diagnostician willing to look at all of that information um, and really synthesize that. Um, so, I mean, I think another piece that warrants conversation here is also, um, I've mentioned that all of that terminology and all of that criteria falls within the DSM-5. Uh, prior to that, there were many other diagnoses that now fall under the autism spectrum disorder um, criteria or the autism, uh, autism spectrum disorder uh, diagnosis. And so 
other terms you may have heard in the past, or maybe some people are still using them, I know it's happening, um, are Asperger's syndrome, um, or maybe Asperger's disorder, uh, pervasive development disorder. There's also pervasive development disorder not otherwise specified, so PDD-NOS. Um, you might hear ASD, right, which is autism spectrum disorder, but also could have been Asperger's syndrome disorder. <laughs> um, we have classic autism. We have autistic disorder, disorder uh, high-functioning autism, or HFA, and then we have Canner's autism. Uh, you may have also heard, which is a separate diagnosis, nonverbal learning disability, um, and then social communication disorder. So now social communication disorder is actually its own diagnosis under the DSM-5, um, but all of those other ones uh, fall under <laughs> the autism spectrum uh, disorder um, diagnosis. And I believe uh, nonverbal learning disability is also its own diagnosis. Now remember, when we talk about diagnostic terms, there are diagnoses that fall under um, the DSM-5, and then there's also educational um, diagnoses. And that's like a whole nother animal. <laughs> and those are the assessments that, can, uh, that get done at schools. Um, and uh, they can be used to create uh, a learning plan. Um, and so, um, you know, that is another conversation to have with, with uh, what, is the, what is the process of an educational diagnosis look like and how is it different than um, a medical diagnosis, which is where this DSM-5 criteria would fall. So I know I've given a lot of information, um, but uh, again, you know, hopefully it's been a little helpful and you've been able to kind of tease out or learn something that you didn't know before. And again, if there is uh, any feedback or um, anything that you'd like to uh, add to what I've said, please, please leave comments, let me know, um, message me. And uh, I would love to chat about it. So take care and thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.